0: Hello, and welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and mental health. I'm clinical psychologist, Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are discussing how we use ketamine-assisted psychotherapy to treat eating disorders. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Reed, we're at it again. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. And today I thought we could dive into eating disorders and tackle this very important topic. It's a condition uh, or variety, a category of conditions that are difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. um, Very, very serious. I think I've heard you say, you know, the most lethal of mental health conditions. Anorexia. Anorexia, yes. Um, And I thought we'd start by just talking generally about this combination of nature and nurture that leads to an eating disorder. Um, we know that there's like some a genetic predisposition. There's some biological factors, um, which maybe you can speak to. But this environment, especially in the Western world that we live in, is uh, it's it's like a, the worst environment possible. <laughs> it seems for healthy eating and healthy beliefs around body image and uh, relationship with food.
1: It's so true. That thin beauty ideal that has been present in one form or another through the ages is so toxic.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's changed over time, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, you look at the artwork from hundreds of years ago. The women depicted in that artwork weren't, you know, they weren't modern-day supermodel thin, right? They were full-figured women.
1: There's this uh, cultural pressure to seek uh, the beauty of the day. Mm. And if you look back in the corset era where um, women would tie corsets up uh, and sometimes even doing damage to ribs or organs, uh, it was around the same time that some would use uh, belladonna alkaloids like nightshade mm. to dilate the pupils because that's what was perceived as beautiful. Right. Um, the name even comes from a belladonna But in some cases, it was deadly.
0: Yeah. Or foot foot binding, you know, in Asian cultures. And it would get so bad that they couldn't even walk. Um, I remember this stuff from, like, history class in high school. They had uh, some cultures where they would uh, put planks on the back of the heads of babies, and it would change the head shape as the head developed uh, to this, you know, really, really elongated, sloped forehead, and I imagine could have affected neural development.
1: Yeah, there's a book I like on the history of eating disorders called "Holy Anorexia" that goes through how it has shown up through the ages. It's fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. So today, in our, in our modern time, we're dealing with you know uh, the, an ex- exposure to media influence on a level that is heretofore unexperienced. Um, we have it, we have you know an access to a supercomputer in our pocket that will remind us to look at it. And when we look at it, we're often on these apps that, you know, I certainly use. A lot of people use it, teenagers, children who are sus- more susceptible to influence, use constantly. And they're being fed not only images of human beings who um, are sort of steeped in this ideology of the way they should look, but also that are digitally altered. So we have these, uh, yeah. these ideals, I guess, quote unquote ideals, um, that uh, we're influenced to reach toward that are essentially impossible.
1: Yeah, and if not digitally altered, uh, surgically yeah. altered. You know, the uh, the CEO of Center for Change, uh, top eating disorder center, who we both know, uh, her name is Nicole Hawkins, a psychologist, a friend and, and dear colleague. She did some research early in her career on body image that I found fascinating uh, that showed that back then, this is pre-social media, looking at uh, a few minutes of a beauty magazine say teen magazine teen vogue uh wreaked havoc on your self-image and think about what it's like now Mm -hmm. with multiple hours a day of scrolling through instagram tiktok and getting exposed to that type of content
0: right i remember in high school um as a high school athlete, my buddies and I in the gym, and we wanted to get fit for our sports, but we also wanted to look shredded, right? We wanted to look ripped for the chicks. Yeah, it was all about being ripped and tan. And I remember hearing about this thing that uh, colloquially was called bigorexia, or these are these are manorexia, manorexia, yeah. Um, where in addition to the you know this super thin body type that maybe is the ideal, um, you had these superhero physiques that really were not attainable naturally without some kind of you know, steroid enhancement. And so I had buddies, high school kids, who were doing steroids, messing up their endocrine systems because yeah. they wanted to look like freaking Captain America.
1: Yeah, and traditionally, eating disorders in males has been underrecognized, recognized yeah. uh, And thankfully now, even though it's still uh, a concern, perhaps even a growing concern, it's being more and more recognized. The ratio still is... Uh, more women to men, because our society has been especially cruel to women, um, but uh, so many men are affected as well. in fact, have you heard of the uh, oh okay i 'm drawing a blank the it 's a uh, study out of out of the Midwest of um, those who didn 't want to go to war a university pro- professor said, okay, I'll recruit them into a study and we'll see what happens to people when starved. And so they fed them like 1600 calories of potatoes and turnips, uh, over many weeks and looked at what happened. And, uh, we learn a lot from that study these days. It would never be approved. It was, uh, uh, unfortunate in hindsight that it, that it happened, but, uh, We just didn't know as much back then. The purpose of the study was to see what happens if you're like a prisoner of war and starved. But what we learned was a lot about eating disorders because the consequences were not just on the body. They were um, pretty seriously uh, seen in the mind as well in terms of what happened Um, and lasted for weeks afterwards where some of these participants in the study became obsessed with food. One was like walking home one day and stopped in dozens of different soda shops just to look at the food. There Mm. were dreams, uh, dreams of food, collecting recipes, but restricting what they'd eat even when able to re-nourish. And what happens in in eating disorders, the brain being the fattiest organ we have, when we restrict nutritional intake, uh, the brain often takes the biggest hit. And uh, after, after uh, eating again, refeeding, um, the brain is also the slowest to bounce back. It can take up to a year for it to really uh, return to baseline.
0: Right. And these biological underpinnings of eating disorders I think are really important for people to understand, especially family members of people who have severe eating disorders. Because uh, when you don't understand that a person with an eating disorder like anorexia doesn't respond to hunger cues the same way as you do or doesn't taste food the same way that you do, never mind the psychological relationship that they have to food. When you don't understand those things, it, it can be it can be frustrating. You, know, you, you see your loved one waste away, And you just think, well, why don't you just eat?
1: Yeah, and it doesn't work like that because I I think that's a really good point you bring up, that uh, loved ones, um, caregivers, therapists, prescribers, everyone needs to remember in working with eating disorders is this often becomes bigger than one's own ability to pull yourself out of it. Like this, this is a deeply ingrained pattern that often needs uh, some serious intervention and support um, because you can't just snap yourself out of it with the same brain that got entrenched in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be a full-on fight-or-flight mode. We really have no idea uh, what it's like if you haven't been through it um, because when we take a bite of, say, toast or something you know, food goes down to the belly, you got these signals, uh, maybe it tastes good, maybe it tastes okay, um, but it's not sending off alarm bells in our brains. But if if you have a, a serious eating disorder, like say anorexia, that signal may very well trigger a full-blown fight or flight response where the amygdala is firing and, and saying danger. So it's, it's more of a feeling of uh, put down the fork and run,
0: right? yeah so if if you're a loved one or a therapist and you've never experienced something like that, um, exercise some empathy and compassion and just mm-hmm. imagine what that would be like. Imagine your favorite dessert and when in anticipation of eating that food, you feel horrified or afraid or nervous instead of excited. can you imagine how difficult that would be? How difficult it would be to overcome?
1: yeah, because it's it's not only the the amygdala firing, it's also this like parietal lobe sense of self that's like overactively checking of, oh, no, did that bite of food uh, make me gain weight? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, so many systems are in hyperdrive when you're in that status, especially when you go from uh, restricting food intake seriously to beginning to refeed. That can be one of the hardest things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you've restricted food to that degree, your your body has adapted to some degree as well. And mm-hmm. so um, that's why when, you know, someone with an eating disorder, a very serious one, and they're very underweight, need to be medically supervised, um, not only because the refeeding process, the, the process mm-hmm. of healing is so technical and complicated, but um, it can be dangerous if they aren't, aren't doing it properly.
1: Yeah, there's something called refeeding syndrome where you do need to uh, be conscious of the rate of refeeding and the laboratory values, um, that often need to be monitored along the way. And if to start at a certain, you can't jump right up to the target calorie range. You need to ease into it and monitor, uh, what's going on
0: medically as well. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk more about the challenges of, of treating eating disorders, but another thought I had about sort of society, um, and its influences on our relationship to food and body is our, the availi- the types of food that are available to us now. I mean, as a, as a global society, we feed more people um, enough calories than probably ever before, right? There's still, world hunger is still an issue, of mm. course, but um, in a place like America, we, have, we can go to a gas station and you can buy something that would have enough calories to keep you alive for just a few bucks. But these calories are not super nutritious, yeah, right? And they're hyper palatable, they're hijacking a system that evolved over you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years to bias us toward sugary, fatty, savory food so that we can put on weight. But now we have ready access to that type of food all the time. Um, and so I like to think about that when I'm thinking about an individual's relationship to food and how hard it can be to uh, to be healthy. Is foods are not unlike, foods nowadays are not unlike drugs. You can get addicted to the blood sugar spikes, you can get addicted to the mouthfeel, and the taste. I remember reading or, or listening about the story of the invention of the Dorito. I think it was the Dorito. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an accident, like all uh, miracles of science, right, like penicillin. Um, but it was, they, they discovered this almost perfect combination of taste and crunchiness and mouthfeel. And then you, it works its way even into the advertising. I think, what is Pringle's slogan? Bet you can't eat just one. Yep. But they're priming us to overeat, right?
1: Yeah, and it's uh, one of the biggest drivers of that is a spike in dopamine. So dopamine exists to propagate the species, right? You um, have sex, spike of dopamine, big one. That's why there's some sexual compulsions, uh, pornography addictions even perhaps um, when you eat, there's a spike of dopamine and it's different from different foods. And dopamine is one of the most habit forming things that exists. And you can see, you can see why it's there. We need food to survive. You know, we need to reproduce to, uh, have the species survive, Mm -hmm. but those, uh, especially in certain, um, societal cultural environments, like you're describing where, uh, Doritos abound and we don't have, uh, you know, it's a sedentary lifestyle as well. Um, Those refined foods in that kind of setting can be a recipe for kind of habitual patterns of of overeating and getting dependent on and seeking that next spike of dopamine.
0: Yeah, you see the same patterns in that kind of eating behavior as in addictions, right? Where you're chasing the dopamine. There's uh, a book about dopamine entitled The Molecule of More, right? It's mm-hmm. not just about reward, it's the drive molecule. It's what makes us want to seek something out that's pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that almost uncontrollable feeding or, or uh, you know, feeding experience and then the shame and guilt afterward. Oh, man.
1: Mm-hmm. I was
0: just going to eat two Oreos and instead I ate the entire sleeve of Oreos. Now I feel like crap. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah similar thought processes that will sustain or lead to uh, an addiction that's the uh, the diagnostic
1: criteria of binge eating disorder in fact Uh, eating a large amount of food in a short period of time with a feeling of loss of control but followed by guilt shame discomfort Mm -hmm. and it's the most uh, prevalent eating disorder the newest addition to the, to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but it shows up in at least 1% to 4% of individuals.
0: Yeah, and I, I bet there's a, even a larger percentage of individuals who binge eat, have periods yeah. of binge eating, but maybe don't meet the diagnostic criteria because they don't have the frequency or they don't have the related psychological responses.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think we all have work to do in our relationship with food and body. And what I like to do with it personally and professionally, is look at our relationship with, say, food as a proxy to our relationship with everything. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's one uh, book I like called Women, God, and Food, uh, where the author says in it, uh, your relationship with food is your relationship with God. Or if you think about it, if you eat fast, you hurry through Uh, your meal, you might be hurrying through a lot of things in your life. Mm And if you're eating um, mindfully, you know, you might be more likely to be mindful in areas of your life.
0: Yeah. I was thinking a lot about mindfulness and eating the other day. And I was listening to Tara Brock's book, um, Radical Acceptance. I love that book. And in there, she talks about pausing and Mm -hmm. just sort of witnessing the, the craving self. I can't remember if that's exactly what she called it, but the wanting self, maybe. Uh, And mindfulness being the tool that you would use to do that. I'm noticing this urge, this drive to, you know, eat through this meal really quickly. Or I feel bloated and and not hungry anymore, but I'm noticing an an urge or a craving for dessert Um, that's going to make me feel like garbage later.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite interventions to use for binge eating disorder. In fact, uh, what you mentioned, what Tara Brock describes is when, if you can bring some awareness to the equation, and when that urge, that craving, that first move towards a binge eating episode comes on, seeing if you can insert a pause, even if it's uh, structured, regimented, like set a timer and tell yourself you're not going to eat until that timer gets to five minutes or 15 minutes. You're not saying you're not going to act on it, but just spreading out time so you don't get sucked into that pattern because once you're in it like we as humans that uh, dopamine is uh, extremely powerful and it can be very difficult to uh, exit that uh, loophole
0: yeah your brain literally goes into a different state and we see this on fmris when we study it you experience it when you get to the end of a meal and you feel like trash and you're wondering what just happened. You know, it's similar to that sensation when you drive home, but you don't remember the ride. Yeah. We, it's it's a different cognitive state. Another reason why I think we should have some compassion for ourselves and others. You're, you're yeah. kind of not the same person during those moments than you are when you're reflecting on those moments.
1: Yeah, and there's a variant of uh, binge eating disorder called night eating syndrome. And it's often seen with Ambien. You know, mm-hmm. we know a lot about Ambien in our Psychiatry profession, of course, and it does. Uh, people do come out of there are memes about it. The Ambien mm-hmm. walrus people come out of a a night of Ambien with an empty box of pizza. It's not uncommon that they don't remember eating one bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, imagine how how frustrating that would be, especially if you don't know what's happening. I had a um, a colleague once who had this problem, and she would rage uh, rage she would raid her fridge at night. Mm-hmm. But wake up, you know, not knowing what she'd done. And she was trying to get to a healthy weight, couldn't lose the weight, was wondering what was happening until she finally made the connection like, oh, there are items in my fridge that are gone. Yeah. So it's, it's a real problem.
1: Yeah, this is why uh, around here when we prescribe someone a sleeping pill, especially something like Ambien or Zolpidem, we'll make sure it's uh, very, very clear that... Uh, you don't take it before you're in bed. You take it in bed and you do everything you can to remind yourself not to not to get out of bed, not to go to the kitchen, especially. Mm-hmm. Because all bets are off, uh, one of those Ambient memes says, um, it's an adventure you'll never remember. <laughs>
0: right, yeah, that it is. Um, so speaking of adventures, the adventure of treating eating disorders. Eating disorders are notoriously difficult to treat. mm mm-hmm. um, you know, in part for the reasons we've been discussing, there's some genetic, neurological, like inherited neurological underpinnings for eating disorder. There's the environmental factors present today that make it so difficult to manage our relationship to food and, and body image. What are some of the other reasons, Reed, that eating disorders are so difficult?
1: There are also the societal, cultural factors. Um, that's a big one. It's um, There's a quote, and i forget who said it that talks about how it's uh it's not healthy to become accustomed to a really sick society you know it's it's and it is really hard to to fully treat this and get to the the underlying root causes when our society is the way it is and and thankfully there's uh, an awareness that's rising around these things where social media platforms, even though they're still full of that, the thin, it's not even the thin, the beauty ideal of the day, uh, they're starting to block content. Like I remember maybe a year or two ago when Instagram said, okay, no more advertisements for detox tea, which was essentially just a laxative. And the Kardashians were doing paid promotional placements of things like this on their pages. And think of the reach they have. And, Mm -hmm. And they... They are um, kind of the epitome of the beauty ideal these days. So many people uh, strive for that um, where it's unrealistic for most people who strive for that. We're all, uh, we're all built differently.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think awareness around that we're all built differently, that in uh, body acceptance
1: mm-hmm. at
0: any shape or size, we want to be healthy, right. We don't want to judge somebody who's at a, a maybe a medically an unhealthy body weight. Uh, we want to encourage and support that person to, be, to get to a medically healthy body weight. But body shape and appearance, we come in all different shapes and sizes. Yeah.
1: there's a, a movement that I really like called HAES, H-A-E-S, health at any size. Mm-hmm. H, yeah, I think I said the letters right. Okay. Um, because it's, uh, it is, it's not the weight number on the scale, uh, it's so much more than that. Even the BMI doesn't get to it. Uh, you can be healthy at nearly any weight, and uh, we focus way too much on the scale. You don't need to know your weight to even survive. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, an athlete friend of mine, very muscular person, uh, you know, solid dude. His BMI, I think according to his BMI, he would have been obese, mm-hmm. uh, but a very, very cardiac, healthy, lots of muscle. know, healthy person. BMI itself is not a great metric for health.
1: Yeah. And often, uh, when you go see your primary care physician or any medical practitioner, um, weight might be triggering, um, or even if it's not, we step on a scale and, uh, the numbers recorded, observed and, and, The practitioner might even jump right into, like, you need to lose weight, Uh, just jumping to conclusions based on that number, which I think is really unfortunate. And uh, I've been uh, on a crusade for years in trying to raise awareness, um, not just in the eating disorder profession or the mental health profession, but in all the health professions of being more sensitive to that.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, as far as treatments go, um, the standard pharmacological approach, SSRIs, sometimes uh, antipsychotics, but they aren't tremendously helpful. And I guess it also just depends on the presentation because not every eating disorder is the same.
1: Yeah. There are no FDA approved medication treatments for anorexia. There is one for bulimia and it was approved years ago. Frankly, it's not that great. Prozac. Uh, The newer diagnostic classification that we were talking about binge eating disorder does have one fda approved medication five ants which is a stimulant and uh, has its own consequences side effects mm-hmm. um and doesn't really get to the underlying issues either so so yeah i am uh very unsatisfied with our medication treatment options um but as a profession, the eating disorder community has been hard at work for years trying to um, come up with and test and validate and iterate on uh, thera- therapy approaches and combinations of, of medications and therapy, but there's just so much more work to do.
0: Yeah. And even my therapy colleagues who are experts at this, you know, that that's the specialty of theirs, will, will say that it's, it's still a very, very difficult group of people to treat and I know I keep saying that but I'm just trying to drive home this point that there's a need for uh, an innovation in the treatment of a lot of mental health conditions but eating disorders in particular which is one of the reasons of course we're so excited about psychedelics uh, and um, have some some decent success using drugs like ketamine uh, and other psychedelics to address eating disorders yeah
1: yeah We talk about psychedelic medicines as pattern interrupters, and these are deeply ingrained patterns, and we talk about how psychedelics shine a light of awareness on our shadows or what's going on underneath the hood in our behaviors. Eating disorders are a great example of that, Um, and not just eating disorders. Disordered eating patterns Mm. that so many more people have, or even... Uh, that relationship with food and body that all of us uh, need to work on.
0: Yeah, I had a client once, um, severe eating disorder, trauma-related, and she, in one of her ketamine experiences, she and I've, I've told this story on other episodes of the podcast, but it just stands out to me as such a powerful experience and an example of how these medicines can help so much. She related to her body with love and acceptance and appreciation for the first time in her memory mm-hmm. during one of these ketamine experiences. Um, so loosening, we, we've also talked in the podcast about this uh, spectrum, this entropic brain spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Being over-controlled to chaotic. And the conditions like anorexia that fall in that over-controlled end of the spectrum are broken up, loosened up, by psychedelics and give a person an opportunity to reflect and see themselves in their world a little bit differently. And this was really pivotal for this patient.
1: Yeah, I can't even count the number of uh, experiences I've witnessed with clients like that of having even just a moment in time of very positive self-love, self-regard, uh, positive body image for the first time they can remember And sure, it may not last during a, beyond a ketamine session or even an MDMA session Mm -hmm. for that matter, but uh, at least you see what's possible. At least you kind of fire those neurons together and make that connection once and can then work on trying to access that again and lay it down as a new conscious pattern, especially with the window of
0: neuroplasticity that psychedelics can bring about. Right. You mentioned MDMA, and that's one of the medicines I'm really excited about for its, its uh, potential as a treatment for eating disorders. Because we see with, its, with the study that's, that MAPS is doing now on MDMA and PTSD, how it helps these folks relate to themselves in such a way that they can, they can move through their trauma, especially if there's shame mm-hmm. associated with the trauma, survivor's guilt or something like that. Because MDMA tends to promote this loving, accepting, open state of, state of mind and like you say it provides you with an experience a felt experience which i can i can you know try to convince a client that they should accept or love themselves mm-hmm. it doesn't usually work really well right <laughs> we're not yep. really in the business of convincing as therapists but to provide for them an experience where they really really feel the difference invaluable
1: yeah i'm uh, i'm really excited about mdma for that purpose not just for the healing from trauma because trauma is a a big factor in many eating disorders, maybe half of individuals or more with eating disorders have an underlying trauma, but also because of that, uh, pervasive negative self image that shows up in eating disorders that I believe MDMA has the potential to heal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how well it's been studied, but I would imagine a lot of eating disorders that maybe aren't connected to an index trauma, like a traumatic event, would be connected to developmental trauma or intergenerational trauma, Mm where you get these these legacies of uh, disordered eating and disordered relationship to self and body that are passed down from parent to child, from grandparent to parent to parent to to child. Um, So it it kind of muddies the waters or blurs the line between what's biologically inherited and what's uh, passed down through the culture of the family.
1: Yeah, we learn all that in the bosom of the family. We learn... How to relate to food and our own bodies from our parents and siblings and then from our classmates and from the media mm-hmm. and from society as a whole and uh, that gets deeply ingrained very early on and it is uh, intergenerational for sure but uh, but I believe in this uh, psychedelic medicine era we are shining a light on that that, that that there is this intergenerational suffering being passed on, and that we can do our own work and break the cycle of that for not only ourselves but for the generations to come.
0: This reminds me of another client experience, and you know we should say that any experience we share in here uh, is we were changing details; uh, it's non-identifiable. I want to make sure we protect our client's privacy. But mm-hmm. This person described an experience on ketamine where they saw the generations of their family. And there was this ribbon of light that was connecting each generation. And they could see the pain that was being passed down from generation to generation around body image. And this person decided that it was going to stop with them. And they didn't want to pass it on to their children. Again, something that maybe you could elicit in a therapy session cognitively. They would understand it. Mm-hmm. Sure, I don't want to pass on to my kid. Of course not. Yeah. Why would I want to do that? But then they go home and find themselves, you know, being really anxious around what their children child is eating or making comments about their child's body shape or size. Uh, but to have this dreamlike vision that is with it, all the neuroplasticity that ketamine in this case promotes and the feelings associated with it is much more transformative, I think, than, than a lot of what we can do in the therapy room without it.
1: Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, so one thing I want to point out is traditionally in the eating disorder field and in a number of other mental health conditions, we've unfortunately placed too much blame on family members. Mm. But, you know, I like to remind family members that it is not their fault and they are the number one Allies for recovery. So we engage the parents, the siblings, uh, on this quest together with the client to heal, to heal together, um, to change the patterns uh, in the home
0: and beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because we're talking a lot about passing down the pain. Yeah, and it's as a parent myself, it's hard not to blame myself. When I see my kids saying some of the same things to themselves that I remember saying to myself when I was young, or having some of the same struggles that I remember having, it's difficult not to think, "Oh crap, oh yeah, <laughs> I've done this to my my kid."
1: It's it what it's what happens during uh, shadow work, psychedelic medicine work in general, is you start to um, kind of comb through the deep caverns of yourself and find, uh, you know, ways of uh, kind of showing up in the world that weren't serving you or maybe even ways when you've contributed without even knowing it to the suffering of others. And at that moment, your heart breaks. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, no. But the beautiful thing is when people heal, uh, not only their kids are starting to heal, but their parents too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you can be a catalyst for healing in the entire system. And sometimes when I have a client talking about this particular struggle, I'll, I'll... I'll use sort of a paradoxical intention intervention where they might say something like, "Well, I'm such a burden to my family," and I'll say, "Well, of course you are. We are all burdens in one way or another. If you're in a relationship to somebody and they think about you and they care about you, they're going to feel pain related to you to some extent at some point. It's just kind of part of the game. But you're not you're not an unwelcomed burden." And yeah. so I'm trying to transform their thinking around the word burden because none of us really want to be a burden to others. But to be fully accepting that you can be an imperfect person in a relationship to a family member, in a relationship to a partner, in a relationship to your child, to a coworker, to a friend, you can be an imperfect person in that relationship. And, in, and it can still be a fulfilling relationship. And sometimes the ways we are in those relationships are too much, either for us or for them, and relationships end or they change. And that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. So this idea of acceptance and openness to all things that is relationships, I think, can sometimes be healing.
1: I remember after having twins, I stumbled upon this piece of art. It had uh, two adults carrying these uh, two bundled up babies on their backs. Uh, and it was called Brightly Covered Burdens. It was mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. So I got a print of it. But... Uh, no, I think that's a, a really good point as well, because we are just walking each other home. We are all in this hot mess together. And in fact, when we ask for help, uh, when we show our true selves, it's actually a gift we're giving to each other of of uh, engaging them in the healing journey and, uh, you know, showing them how they can uh, help share some of that burden. It's like, it's really, it's what we're here for.
0: Yeah. I know there will be people listening to this who will think about times in their lives when they have opened up to friends or family members, to people in, they're in relationships with, been vulnerable and been harmed. You know, they they're worried yeah. that they're a burden, and they discover that the other person actually doesn't like them and doesn't want to be in a relationship with them. So they might be hearing this and saying, "Well, easy for you guys to say." But um, so I want to I want to say that out loud and and um, you know. Pay my respects to how difficult it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be in this world and be in relationships with other people. It doesn't always work out when you're vulnerable, but I think on balance, it's better to show up and uh, be open, be yourself, come what may.
1: Yeah. And, you know, every moment in life, we're either opening up to life, which is brave and scary and risky, or we're closing down and constricting to life. And eating disorders are an example of that. We can talk about that more, but um, that open-heartedness is where all the good stuff is—the you know full-flowering expression of like feeling, experiencing, living your life. But you're also going to get hurt at times. It's it's
0: inevitable. And we have like colloquial phrases about you know like rolling with the punches, as an example of how to take that hurt and keep going yeah to being flexible when we're rigid embracing against a force and it hits us it can hurt us more if you think about standing in the waves in the surf you know if you try to smack yourself into that wave you might do a little bit more damage than if you turned around and body surfed it rode with it
1: and another thing i like to uh, point out for family members on this topic of not placing blame but but uh showing up together on the healing journey is what you mentioned at the beginning, that that eating disorders, like many mental health conditions, are a combination of genetic and environmental factors. In fact, on average, I'd say mental health conditions are about 50-50 in general, and eating disorders are no exception, some a little less, some a little more than that, um, because we're, we're born into this world genetically wired with a certain deck of cards and it may not be on a path to an eating disorder it usually is not but what happens is there's this perfect storm of biopsychosocial environmental factors like it might be that you go into you're wired with uh, a conscientiousness and a certain level of potential anxiety and then you go into ballet class at a young age and your teacher is just yelling at you um, about, you know, negative body image related things. Um, Or it may be some loss of control or traumatic thing that happened, some bullying incident, maybe multiple of those, but then that perfect storm is what can lead to the onset of uh, disordered eating or even eating disorders.
0: Right. Yeah. In the Air Force, when we would I was in the military for a while, and we would look at aircraft mishaps. What would what what factors led up to an aircraft mishap? Because there's so many controls and safeguards in place to prevent an aircraft mishap. What happened? So we, they called it the Swiss cheese model of analysis. And you know, if you if you stacked a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese together, the likelihood that there are, that the holes are going to line up, any one set of holes is going to line up that you could pass a bullet all the way through, is very very rare. But it can happen. Yeah. So each of those variables you're talking about is you know, one, one layer of cheese. And the, the idea that as a parent, I am responsible for all of those layers of cheese is kind of insane. Oh, yeah. let's, let's have some compassion for ourselves uh, as caregivers of people with mental health conditions. Yeah, yeah, of, of
1: anyone in this world. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a hard journey um, no matter where you're coming from. Right. There's another way of uh, looking at it too on this nature versus nurture debate. Um, and by the way, I don't think it's ever nature versus nurture. It's always nature and nurture. Yeah, it's always both. But in the in the oncology field, there's this concept of uh, a two-hit hypothesis. You might have a a mutation in a tumor suppressor gene or some genetic variant that puts you at risk for cancer, but the second hit might be smoking cigarettes, which helps explain why one person could be a smoker and not get lung cancer, but the next person does.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, is there anything else with respect to psychedelics and the treatment of eating disorders that you think we ought to cover?
1: You know, in in my experience, uh, sometimes it takes higher doses of psychedelics gradually, mm-hmm. you know, starting low and going slow is often is usually the best approach. But sometimes it takes higher doses to get through these kind of uh, tightly held, deeply ingrained patterns or uh, big walls of resistance. Right. And also sometimes it takes uh, multiple sessions. If you look at the the MDMA research, for example, whether you're looking at the PTSD protocol or the eating disorder one that we've been involved in and I've, I uh, helped write the protocol for is uh, there are dozens of hours of therapy for those, say two or three doses of MDMA right And same with the PTSD studies, you might have uh, you know three doses of medicine and you know 45 hours of visit. and so there's yeah. a lot of therapy. Uh, involved.
0: Which is something I think the general public is probably not quite getting and understanding when they see the New York Times headlines, MDMA cures PTSD. They're not seeing all the therapy that goes into it, right? When this gets FDA approved, it's not going to be FDA approved as, you know, take two of these and call me in the morning. Yeah, It's going to be approved in conjunction with some rigorous psychotherapy.
1: And that will be the first uh, FDA approval when MDMA, presumably, fingers crossed, when it gets approved by the FDA in, say, a year or two. It will be the first uh, medication plus therapy approval, and it will also be the first medication-assisted cure. Um, there was an article in JAMA, an editorial, talking about the MDMA results for PTSD a couple that came out a couple years ago that, that talks about that, is like how uh, pivotal is that? We, we don't often go for the cure in mental health, or at mm-hmm. least with medications. In psychotherapy, sure. Uh, and it's uh, the talking cure. It's a long, drawn-out process. Right. But but in uh, in prescribing, all too often, unfortunately, because of the options we have, we're, we're going for the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but this is changing. We're entering this new era of curative psychiatry or interventional psychiatry where people can come in um, and get a dose of medicine, a psychedelic medicine uh, with uh, holding space and guiding from you know skilled clinicians, and then go home and not take this as a daily pill, but come back for more therapy maybe maybe another dose or two along the way but uh, but yeah, this is the dawn of a new era that I'm yeah. really excited about
0: yeah, as a therapist, I am so excited about this like I keep referencing it's we're providing. Chemically induced experiences, right? Or plant medicine induced experiences? We call it a chemical perspective. You know, it, to me that is so much more exciting as a mental health practitioner than uh, take this every day because it flattens your emotions at the top and low ends, and that's better than being manic or depressed. You know, even though it kills your sex drive and makes you uninterested in the things you were normally interested in. I know it's kind of a bleak description of what some of these medicines do, but they, for a lot of people, they've just sort of resigned themselves that that Prozac me is, is the new me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't have to be for many of us. Uh,
1: a couple other things worth mentioning on the topic of eating disorders is that I, I think we need to be more proactive in screening, in talking about these things, uh, looking at them in ourselves and our loved ones with our clients. Mm-hmm. And there are some good screening tools out there. Unfortunately, they're not used often enough, in my opinion. But we do need a sense of urgency. Um, because in eating disorders, it's kind of tragic. But traditionally, um, it's getting better. Traditionally, you, you show up with uh, an eating disorder concern, and you're often turned away from the treatment you need, like 24-hour care, uh, until your sick enough. Um, we'd never do that in cancer. You never say come back when your cancer's stage three, you know, we, we get on it proactively, but we do need a sense of urgency. We need to be proactive when in doubt, like intervene, get the therapist involved, uh, get a dietitian on board, uh, check in with the primary care doc. Um, you know, follow up with your psychiatrist and it's a it's a multidisciplinary team approach and eating disorders
0: yeah it takes an all hands on deck i think approach for that and like you say the earlier the intervention the better and when you think of what psychedelics bring to the table before uh the the vice grip of these beliefs that maintain something like anorexia gets too tight. Mm-hmm. If you had a consciousness loosening experience on ketamine yeah. or psilocybin or MDMA or ayahuasca, uh, you know, you don't have to break up all the plaques, all the cognitive plaques that haven't formed yet. So like you're saying earlier, the better, I think. Yeah.
1: And specifically, there are some screening tools that are highly sensitive and specific. Like there's one that comes out of the UK called the scoff. S-C-O-F-F. It's a very brief questionnaire uh, where if any of the questions are answered yes, it suggests the need for screening. And we can, of course, put these in show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a condition as well that we're seeing more and more. While not an official diagnosis, it's wor- worth being on the lookout for called orthorexia. Right. And uh, it's basically an unhealthy obsession with clean eating. Um, and there are some, some screening tests that are becoming more and more validated, like the Brotman, B-R-A-T-M-A-N, um, orthorexia yeah. screening test.
0: You'll see this a lot in fitness and wellness communities, mm-hmm. you know, and it revolves around particular diets that, there can be some religious fervor about, you know, where where people, there's the vegan community, there's the ketogenic community, there's the the carnivore community, and they they become very, very extreme and polarized. And it is, there's there's sort of uh, a restrictive, obsessive, uh, and again, sort of religious zeal about uh, some of these eating, ways of eating, these nutrition styles, I don't know what you would call them, that reaches pathological levels.
1: Yeah, and if you, Back to what you said about like constricting towards life, the more and more food rules you have, the, the less and less you can uh, enjoy food, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, same goes for life. Uh, you know, when you when you uh, have a negative body image that's growing and taking a grasp on on you, and you won't let yourself say be seen or wear certain clothing or go to the swimming pool, then you're constricting that life experience, and so one of the goals um, in treatment of eating disorders, no matter what approach we're using, we're we're loosening the grasp that that stuff has on us and opening up more and more to, you know, the full experience of life.
0: It's a good metric to use when just evaluating anything that's coming at you in your life or anything that, any kind of habit or pattern that you have. Is this experience or life constricting, or is this experience or life expanding?
1: Yeah. And it's a balance too. It's a spectrum. Uh, or you mentioned the over control end of the spectrum where you see conditions like anorexia, OCD, anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum with the loss of control, it might be binge eating disorder, bulimia with binge purge cycles. And, uh, there is beauty in the spectrum. There's wisdom in having, uh, Control sometimes and uh, letting go of control at other times. But uh, I think the the target is in the middle. Like yeah. we're striving for balance.
0: Balance or at least fluidity. Mm-hmm. You know, can, yeah. can you fluidly move from one extreme to the other uh, or are you fixated there? Yeah. Because I can think of times in my life when I have needed some rigid control. You know, I'm, I'm on a long hike or a long race or whatever and I, I need to. I need to use different forms of motivation to keep me going. Some of them is the inner drill sergeant that says "keep going," and sometimes in colorful language, right? And then sometimes it's the other—it's—it's it's the the yang or the yin. You'd have to tell me which one it is, but it's the, you know the the more open and accepting. It's okay. You're going to be all right. You know, loosen up.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the yang is that kind of control, and the yin kind of that fluid flowing. Got it. Um, but uh, I think it's a good analogy, and that's often—I know this is a bit of an aside—but it's often used to describe the the masculine and feminine energies. Mm-hmm. And if you look at uh, in yourself, like what your predominant uh, disposition is in, say in relationship, it doesn't matter if you're what your gender is per- personally, or if you even have a gender. Mm-hmm. You know, it—it's like, are you more likely to? Take the wheel, take control, make the decisions. Are you, or are you more likely to go with the flow? Um, do you, are you more likely to be the shoulder to cry on or do the crying? Um, but what's, what's that beautiful enlightened balance is what you said, the fluidity of being able to play both roles, even though we all have innately, um, a predisposition somewhere on one end of that spectrum for the most part. And, uh, Yeah, so I like what you said about the fluidity in life is being able to uh, kind of swing along this pendulum uh, as the demands of life require it Um, rather than showing up um, with a strict rule that cannot be broken like I have to exercise every single day or get a certain number of steps because some days just don't allow for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's, uh, like you were pointing out, something that's good to be on the lookout for is how rigid are our personal rules Um, or even on the other end like adding some structure when needed some some discipline when needed when we're um, when the opposite is showing up for us
0: yeah yeah mental health is to some extent balance and then ease of fluidity between the two and i think you achieve that through self-awareness mindful awareness self-acceptance mindful acceptance and compassion when we um, stumble too far to one end of this spectrum or the other and experience some damage.
1: And, and while we're on the topic of exercise, um, I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, our, our intentions are important and it's worth, uh, questioning our motives, uh, asking ourselves, you know, why we do the things we do or why is this thing in my life or why is this thing not in my life? Um, Because all too often, uh, I see people, you know, eat a hamburger, go to the gym to work off those calories rather than, you know, what I believe is, is uh, a more balanced approach of, you know, eat a hamburger because you want to check in with yourself. So you're not, uh, doing it mindlessly or not eating beyond the point of when you would want to or need to, but also. Um, going to the gym because it feels good because you enjoy joyful movement and expression, right? You
0: know? Yeah, because it makes your body healthier and uh, and if you think you're going to work off the calories from a hamburger in 30 minutes in the gym, you're probably wrong. Like I think we have a distorted view of the balance between caloric intake and caloric expenditure through exercise. Um, but it would just be as you were saying, better if we approach these things eating, exercise activities. Uh, with healthy intention.
1: Yeah, there's a there's an an author I like, a researcher in the eating disorder world, out of uh, Canada named uh, Neva Piran. Mm. She's done some great work. She wrote a book called Journeys of Embodiment, a textbook. I have it here somewhere, but uh, I'm thinking of her her book and her theories because we were talking about corsets earlier and she uses the analogy of uh, as we're born into this world and and this is focused on women who who have uh... you know have been treated the harshest uh... by far in terms of you know food and body image struggles Mm -hmm. Um, as we're born into this life we have uh... freedom we enjoy joyful movement we don't have these rules constricting us from living but then the societal rules and expectations are layered on. And it's like these hooks of a corset. Mm. Uh, and then one day we're like, Oh no, I just constricted my life down to very little and I can't move or breathe or live uh, freely. And so the journey uh, back home to embodiment is one of unhooking those hooks of the corset. And she even has a experience of embodiment scale that I really like. It's uh, it'll break it down into categories of like joyful sexual expression or using your voice Mm -hmm. or um, connecting with movement and dance and things like that that you might have done as a kid but don't feel like you can anymore. Um, So it is a journey, uh, the healing journey in eating disorders is is a journey of coming home to your body.
0: And I would, you know, we should be patient with ourselves on that journey home. If I'm going to if I can riff on that corset analogy, like when you splint a limb because it's injured, the muscles atrophy from lack of use. So once you get the cast off or the splint off or you know the corset you've been wearing your entire life, you start to unhook it, you might not be able to jump right back into life as you now want it. You might have to ease yourself back into that. So be patient with yourself as you change, as you go mm-hmm. through the process and the journey of change. Yeah. Well, thank you, Reed. Makes this is a Likewise. good conversation. Always love having them. Same. Go Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers team. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for joining us today. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This will help us get into the ears and faces of more people and help us put wind in the sails of the psychedelic medicine renaissance. Thanks for listening hey listeners it's steve thayer here letting you know that numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic assisted therapy to clients these courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself reed joe and others and offer a variety of high quality learning experiences so if you would like to learn more about these trainings you can find the link in the show notes below or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.